Welcome to Inviting Doom, a podcast about faith, bad theology, and stepping into ideas marked as dangerous for the soul. I'm Sarah, one of your hosts. And I'm Krista. We'd love you to join us as we unlearn old beliefs, navigate current issues, and explore the previously unexplored religious frameworks in our lives. So we actually have finally named our podcast. It's called Inviting Doom. And I think sort of we, uh, Krista and I, talked about our podcast title in the sense that we both grew up, um, and it seems to be the experience of a lot of other evangelicals as well, um, that we know who have deconstructed, is this idea of there's a a lot of things that are not just taboo, but sort of all these do's and don'ts. do's as many as don'ts that sort of if you do do them or don't do them you're going to invite some sort of catastrophic um, repercussions into your life and whether that ultimately is like going to hell and letting the devil take a foothold or not that we just really wanted to explore that all these things that for our younger lives being fed into us and being told that these are the things you avoid and these are the things that you do. Um, Otherwise you're going to invite doom essentially into your life and you're going to fall away. And so as most of you know, I'm Sarah and we've also got by zoom, my fellow podcaster. I'm Kristen. Nice to join you guys again. I'm excited to have another conversation here today. Um, And we also have um, a friend, a mutual friend who's joined us, who is, anonymous at this point and may or may not chime in so if you hear a strange little voice coming out of the corner well her voice isn't strange but a voice that is neither Krista's nor mine then that's who it is it is not a ghost um of Christmas past it is a a mystery (laughs) guest so today actually we're going to delve into quite a hot topic (laughs) we Krista and I finally decided we're going to talk about um sex and all things connected. So Krista, why don't you tell us about the a couple of the articles that you sent my way for uh, me to read? Yeah, so for our listeners, you guys may or may not know, I was a health science major. And so I took um, an adolescent health class. And one of the weeks focused on sex. And we looked at a couple different scientific articles, quite a few actually, but a couple of them really stood out to me. And um, it was funny because I was sitting in, in the class as a 36 year old and like learning things about sex and why I was educated the way I was educated and why certain things may or may not have helped me as a mature adult. And uh, one of them is called Beyond Abstinence and Risk, A New Paradigm for Adolescent Sexual Health. And that's by Amy Chalet. And the other one is called Why Pleasure Matters. And uh, it's global relevance for sexual health, sexual rights, and well-being. And kind of what these two articles really dove into was how we teach sex and sexual health um, in schools or to young people. And there's been a a history of parents wanting it to be in the home and wanting to have control, but ultimately the government has had to get involved because we don't know that all families are equipped for that. Um, And so just for public health safety, the schools have gotten involved to make sure that there's something going on so that everyone is kind of on this equal playing field. But the two paradigms that they've used is abstinence only or these risk paradigms, which is like, if you have sex, you're at risk for an STD. If you have sex, you're at risk for getting pregnant. And they don't ever really touch on things like pleasure or how to navigate partnerships or the fact that you can have sex in a really safe way. Um, And then if you just are teaching abstinence only, then you're really teaching almost shame where kids don't feel like they can go and talk or express their new feelings and their body, these emotions, everything that's tied together. Because we know that sex isn't just like this singular static thing. It's a part of self. It's part of identity. It's a part of culture. Like it's so complex 
that you can't just isolate it and talk about it in this singular way. And when you silence kids who are trying to develop and figure it out for themselves, you end up making them figure it out on their own in silence. And a lot of times pushing them to porn to figure it out on their own or asking other kids who are experimenting. And that's not always great either. And so anyway, as a 36 year old in a health science class, I kind of had these epiphanies of like, wow, this is why I am the way that I am. Not only that, but I know from the evangelical side why I was taught abstinence only, why my parents didn't really sit me down and have the talk. And like a personal story of mine is my mom caught me at 13 years old on the internet Googling a naked man because I grew up with four (laughs) sisters. And at 13 or 14, I was like, I have no idea what a man looks like. And I wasn't trying to be bad. I wasn't trying to be like lustful and get into porn. I was just like, I need to know what a man looks like. What is this? What is this? (laughs) And of course, by the time she caught me, she was kind of like, that's fair. You should probably start learning these things. But by 13, 14, 15, kids are no longer listening to their parents. Parents do, do not have the voice in their child's life for those topics anymore and they're they're already leaning away from their parents and le- leaning towards peers and I don't think my parents were equipped even if they wanted to to talk to me about sex because they also grew up in this abstinence only very Christian uh, view paradigm culture and even if I was like tell me about all these things I think it would have been so taboo and uncomfortable for them and almost trashy like it it wouldn't have been classy for them almost that they wouldn't have been able to help me even if they wanted to and so here's an interesting thing is again you already touched on this this idea of course of sex being or sexuality those are two different things but um being shameful and so then you have the reason that a lot of parents and not obviously just religious parents but but particularly like evangelical religious parents um, not talking about sex at a younger age when they do still have that audience and they do still have that um, sway with their children um, because kids are pure like quote-unquote pure and they're not supposed to learn this stuff like you're already bio mission you're already teaching your kids that sex is something not to be talked about that your body is not to be talked about that your desires are not to be talked about um and so sure you may think okay well at 16 they're probably going to start to date and maybe they should know something by then well like you said by then they already have learned stuff from other places and again just as a side note i i hate that sort of paradigm as if which which i grew up with and i'm sure Um, you guys grew up with as well is this idea that the world quote unquote the world's teaching of sex is dirty and awful and if they don't learn it in the home they're going to learn it from these awful dirty places well that's not actually the case I mean I'm not saying you know there aren't horrible you know ways to learn about sex out there but you know there are a lot of educational resources that don't shame and don't make sex dirty that exist outside of the home um that often are blocked and often are not encouraged and often not um, supported, um, but they're there. So I, I just wanted to get rid of that thing of like, oh, if you don't teach your kids the basics of sex at age seven or eight, you know, they're going to learn it elsewhere and that's going to be an awful, horrible, dirty thing. Well, that's not necessarily the case. But if you were going to want to have a conversation with your kids, by not talking about it, you're already saying that it's dirty and that it's something that you shouldn't think about and shouldn't talk about. And I, I mean, you said your, your story, like I'm pretty sure my parents, my mom, you know, no harm to her, but like you said, there's just such an ill equipping there. I think the first time I ever heard about sex is she tried to use something that I understood, which was cats at the time was like, this is what this is how cats do it. And then she said to me that like, I don't remember this, but she said my response to her explaining the cat mating process was, Oh, well, thank goodness. Humans don't have to do it that way. (laughs) So all in all a very successful sex talk, right? (laughs) Like, Oh, thank God. That sounds atrocious. I'm so glad that you never doing that. I mean, 
<laughs> well, I think too, a lot of people when they when they hear about equipping young kids with sex um, ideas and facts and stuff, they get really uncomfortable because no one wants to take their eight year old and give them this explicit material. And no one is actually suggesting that like there's really age appropriate ways that have been studied. And you, you basically just start with anatomy, like this is a penis, this is a vagina, you know, things like that. And you don't have to sexualize everything for them, but they need to have an idea of what the human body is and what it can do and stuff. And then as they grow, you, you kind of build on that. But also the biggest part is just having this kind of open conversation where they feel like if they have a question, it's not taboo or icky for them to come and talk to you because by not talking about it and you're like kind of what you were saying, Sarah, if you don't talk about it, you're kind of giving this uh, shadow over it. Like it's, it's gross. It's sinful. It's not to be talked about, but it divorces you from your own body. Like if you believe that God made you in his image and that you're beautifully and wonderfully made, and that children are a blessing from above. If you believe those scriptures, then you would have to also think, if I'm beautifully and wonderfully made, he made me so that I would have these hormones. He made me so that I could procreate. And so why is it so bad for my body to do what it's designed to do, which is feel horny, want to procreate? The biggest drives in your body is to survive and reproduce, right? So like, you want to survive so bad, but you're trying to tell your kids to not feel like reproducing. And that's literally something that they cannot turn off. They try to repress or they try to perform for you or they hide it from you. But the conversation should be more about you are going to feel these ways because this is the way the biological body has been made. Even if God made this body, he made it this way. And there should be an awareness of that. Well, and I think that this is the, this, I mean, going back to that dichotomy of if we step it back, one step back, um, you know, you're saying, well, if your body is fearfully and wonderfully made, but that's contradictory in scripture. So you have essentially like the first body, like Adam and Eve's bodies were fearfully mm-hmm. made, but they're sinful and dirty and broken. So right. of course, any of your urges and any of your desires, it basically makes it impossible for you as a human to navigate what's dirty and sinful and broken and awful and what's fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's very simply wrapped up as like, oh, anything that occurs within marriage is fearfully and wonderfully made. And everything that's outside of marriage is dirty, sinful, awful, and broken. And there's actually something, because obviously people have urges of all kinds, like I might have I had to take the cookie dough away from my friend here because urges to just keep eating cookie dough have problems. Um, (laughs) But, but, but Brene, or not Brene Brown, I love Brene Brown, but um, uh, Glennon Doyle's book Untamed, she talks about that. She talks about this story, which I thought was really fascinating in relation to desire. She talks about a friend, I think it was, who um, basically said, I have a really strong desire to sort of like run away and buy a house on a beach. And she sort of goes through this thing and she says, well, the friend didn't have any funds. Like it was an impulse that's irrational. It's like this strong desire to buy a house on a beach. It's maybe nostalgic. It's maybe, you know, she's like, you don't have any money. What would you do about your job? Like all these kinds of things. But she talks about, like going deeper into sort of what she would call your knowing and whether that's God or your sort of internal knowing of being at rest with yourself. But this idea of like, you don't actually want to run away and buy a house at the beach and spend all your money. When you dig that apart enough, you're like, oh, you actually want to connect with your family. And because you have these ideas around the beach being disconnected from the busyness and craziness of society. um, And that, the beach house is the time that you go on vacation with your family and you connect with your family away from, from the stresses of life. It's not actually that you're craving and desiring um, to buy a very expensive beach house. It's that you, your deepest cravings and your deepest desires are that you want connection and you want quiet and you want. And so she talks about that. Yes, our desires are good, 
that those things are good. It's not, it's sometimes they, they manifest in a bit of a weird way, but if we take like five seconds and pick them apart yeah. as responsible adults, we can dig that down and go, Oh, I'm actually not looking to actively cheat on my partner. I'm not actually looking to, you know, go to an ashram and quit my job and whatever. Sometimes certain things are necessary, whatever, but it's digging down below all that and going, oh, and resting in what your actual desire is and trusting those desires. Whereas the, the paradigm that I grew up with um, was you don't trust anything about yourself. Like all of it's dirty and awful. So if you're feeling sexual or lustful or, you know, you, those are things you turn off, right? Yeah. I think that we, we grew up very similarly. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things that I think about with the sex education is so many other things we talked about in my family, uh, temptations, like we would talk about lying or gluttony or, you know, just any of the 10 commandments. And so I felt equipped to deal with other temptations and I kind of knew the list of which ones were wrong and why they would be morally wrong and all that kind of stuff. But when you don't touch on sexuality and there's just kind of like, a, oh, we don't talk about that. And you have the idea of like, this is bad, but you're so ill-equipped to deal with that. Um, you kind of take all of the tools away from the person. Like I, I knew why I shouldn't lie, but I also understood why I would be tempted to lie. I didn't know why I was feeling frisky or horny or hormonal. I didn't know how I was supposed to handle those feelings. And to this day, I'm not really sure what I, what like Christian parents would be telling their kids if they were promoting the abstinence only and they didn't want their kids to have sex, but they also wanted them to be equipped. What would you tell your, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old who's going through puberty of you're going to feel really horny and that's to be expected because these hormones are going to come as part of your development. What do you tell them to do with that? Well, I think the, the Vargas piece that you sent over the Ford Vargas and there were like a bunch of different writers. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting about framing that desire, whether it's desire or hormones or whatever, but framing mm -hmm. sexual desire within the framework of human rights and, and, and holistic health, like, like desire and health and human rights safe, consensual, whatever, that's all part of it because it's much more easy. Like you said, you're, you're not equipping by omission, by not talking about it and by, by not letting kids know exactly what's happening. You're not equipping them. You're, you're setting them up for disaster and failure. Yes. And, um, and they're either going to be two kinds. They're either going to fail at it and they're going to have sex before marriage and they're going to screw up or whatever, because they're not going to be able to control it or they're going to be like how you and I have talked about yeah. um, where you just shut everything down. And like I grew up, I just shut because, um, because I was so invested in holiness mm -hmm. and I was so invested in, like, I didn't even think I was going to get married because I thought it would be a distraction from God. That's how yeah. like, I thought like, I used to be tearful when I had a crush on one of the guys in our youth group and he would play guitar up at the front. Mm -hmm. I used to be tearful that I was finding it hard as a teenager to concentrate on God instead of his sweet guitar licks or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I would be like actually repentant and feeling awful that I couldn't fully 100% worship without yeah. this distraction of noticing that he was cute and I liked him. Yeah. And so I just thought, well, the best thing is, is like if desire and, and any sort of sexuality is going to detract me away from God, well, then I might as well just not feel those things. Let's just cut, like just pack out large parts of yourself. Um, yeah. And so this idea of framing sexual pleasure within a human rights framework and a health framework of, well, what does consent look like? Like you said, Krista, what are things that are safe or, or not safe? Like is missing before marriage and sex exactly the same thing? No, they're not. Is feeling a girl's boob the same as whatever else? No, it's not like you can, you can give kids ways and means of being sexually active and expressing and learning about their sexuality without mm -hmm. saying you're going to get an STD and die and become pregnant. Like, yeah. 
and it's just, not like, two extremes and that's kind of the way it's played there's two extremes either you're gonna have sex and you're gonna die <laughs> of an STD or <laughs> yeah <laughs> or, you're, death, unless or you're, you're gonna do it within the confines of a committed marriage and else and it's gonna flourish yeah <laughs> magically, <laughs> magically. Yeah, that's kind of like the other big lie that you and I have talked about before too um just we have mutual friends. We have probably these experiences ourselves. I can only talk about myself personally, but I basically waited until marriage. You know, we had some really close moments because we were almost married and it was exciting. But for the most part, like honeymoon was, was the time. And like I had these ideas that it would just kind of click into place and I wasn't concerned about it at all. Like we went to premarital counseling and they were like, so we should probably talk about your sex life. What do you guys plan to do about that? Like how often do you want it? What things are you okay with? What things are you not okay with? Which by the way is the stupidest question to ask a virgin. Oh yeah, completely. How, how, how was I supposed to know mm-hmm. what I was okay with and how frequently I'd want this? So of course I'm like, I don't know, like every day. Because in the movies I saw it like as this, huge magical event that like why wouldn't you do this like every morning or every evening and like I had no idea (laughs) and then here I am on my wedding day and actually most people's wedding days are stressful and yeah it was and I felt sick because I really hadn't eaten because I was stressed but then guess who's been waiting for like a couple years 30 years (laughs) I also wanted to do it in theory but I also wanted to enjoy it and now there's this pressure to just like do it and then you kind of do and you're sore and it's not great and then for the rest of my honeymoon I learned really quickly that our appetites were different that I wanted to be able to say no to him because I wasn't feeling up to it a lot of times because obviously I don't have this insatiable vagina like (laughs) (laughs) he had expectations and as a, a submissive wife who's I'm my only job basically <laughs> my only job, but I felt like but almost I was, almost I was the only person in the world who was allowed to satisfy him sexually and now I'm allowed to and now I don't want to I know. Yeah, exactly. There's a great podcast for anyone listening that doesn't know called Straight White American Jesus. And they talk about purity culture and all things related. Um, But they do talk about that too, about this. You only have kind of one job. Two things. Sorry, I'm counting well today. Um, But like two things, Christian is assumed, obviously, and virginity is assumed. And that actually in itself becomes like idolized. Like that's an idol. Sex becomes an idol of this weird, like fantasy idol whatever that isn't even rooted in any sort of reality the thing that i thought was very fascinating as you've already mentioned krista sort of this stuntedness that occurs where Mm -hmm. you may have great brain power um figuring out all all sorts of theological um ins and outs and flourishing at school or whatever and you're totally stunted in sexuality because you don't know about yourself because you've hacked off all those parts of yourself if you're you were like me and that stuntedness it's it's just very fascinating because you have two things at play your sexuality has been stunted Mm -hmm. and yet you're expected to perform sex and so for the Christian, I'm obviously using these terms very loosely. Many Christians are very different and um, evangelicals even in themselves are extremely different. So pardon us if sometimes either Chris or I use too broad of terms. We're largely speaking to our own evangelical upbringings that occurred both here in BC and Krista was in the States for a while. But this thing where sex is seen as sexuality that sex, the act of sex is sexuality. So you have turned off your sexuality. You don't know about it. Like you said, Krista, you don't know your body parts. You don't know what does what. You don't know how you are feeling. You don't know what your appetite for sex is. You don't know if you're sexually compatible with the person you're going to marry. You don't know about consent. I never learned about consent. I never learned that about it was okay to say no to your husband. I didn't learn jack shit about sex or how I was supposed to feel about it or or what I wanted or desire nothing literally my sex talk was sex is important to the husband that was it that's what I got and so 
I wasn't even in the equation. It was just like, oh, you have, like you said, the vagina and that's for the husband and that's it. There you go. And then your sexuality as a woman is suddenly supposed to magically materialize on your wedding night as you perform an act of sex. And those are two very, very different things. Being a sexual being is no different than the fact that we like to eat food and need to eat food and breathe. Mm-hmm. Like sexuality as humans, and I'm, I'm not saying that everyone expresses sexuality in the same way or has the same desire levels or wants or whatever. I'm just saying that's just a part of being human is that there is a sexual component to humanity. And that's, you're not allowed to express that uh, sexuality not just in sexual actions, like, okay, you're, you know, you, you can't be kissing, you can't be dating, you can't be holding hands even for some people. Uh, you can't be doing any of that stuff. But you also can't be sexual. Like, you can't wear lipstick. You can't wear, you can't be too alluring. You can't, um, you be can't okay wear fake t-shirts. Yeah, you can't be okay with your body. Yeah. As a woman, you can't attract the male gaze. Like you are responsible for the male gaze, you know, and that weight that you're putting on say 12, 13 year old girls, that they're responsible for, for providing a neutral non-sexual landscape for mm-hmm. men. So that men who are these sexual pigs who can't control themselves, which is a huge disservice to men as if men don't have control, don't understand consent, you know, don't have deep, intricate emotional connections and feelings around sex. So huge disservice to men. But this idea that like women are just this neutral nothingness upon which men get to put their desire when the time is right, when you put a ring on it, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Well, and what was funny for me and kind of ironic and sad all at the same time was I so badly wanted to be a good wife. I wanted to do it right. I worked really hard to do all the right things. And obviously in evangelicalism, even if it's not said like this outright, there is this perception that if I do all the right things, I will be protected by God and um, I should have a pretty good life. And the only type of, I guess, sinful or bad things that I should expect to happen to me are like persecution, you know, like things of the world might get to me, but... I didn't expect that I would be divorced or anything like that because I was, I was doing everything right. And so I'm doing everything right. I wait till my wedding night and I want to be a good wife. And then because I did everything right, I wasn't able to be a good wife to him, you know? And so it's like this irony where I couldn't please him. I couldn't make myself somebody that I wasn't. I didn't know how to morph myself into what he needed nor did it feel right to me. And it was really stressful. And then honest, over the course of my 10 year marriage, always trying to figure that out and ultimately not figuring it out. And our, our marriage ended. And when I finally got the balls to ask, like, why did you divorce me? Which seems like a pretty standard question if your marriage is <laughs> Why exactly? Why, why are you divorcing me? And it came down to he didn't feel desired, Mm. you know? And so it's all these things where I wanted to meet that mark. I wanted to make, I wanted to have that for myself and for my spouse. I wanted to be a good wife. I wanted to have fulfilling, pleasurable sexual experience. And the fact that I had waited, I hadn't experienced, I hadn't experimented really. I hadn't had anyone to teach me or to talk openly with me about how to negotiate, how to discover my own pleasure, how to um, gradually build up, like try something and actually take time to debrief with myself and my partner of like, did I enjoy that? Do I want to do that again? You know, like little things like that go a really long way. But when you're thrown into a marriage without any experience at all, and you're the expectation is that you perform and you do whatever your husband wants and needs, you don't have room. Well, I didn't have room. I guess I shouldn't say it to everybody. I didn't feel like I had room to really negotiate for myself and discover for myself. And instead I was behind the ball, always trying to figure out how do I make this right for him? And you can. Well, and and shocker, like that's not someone like 
running after you and constantly going, oh, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need all day? That's not enjoyable for someone who actually cares about their partner. Maybe it's fine for those people who want, well, I was going to say something bad, but I was thinking of like that sort of that want of a return to a 1950s sort of subservient woman who cooks and cleans and meets your needs. And, you know, you have the perfect picket fence. Maybe that works for those kind of people. But for modern couples, modern couples who are suffering under economic difficulties and maybe problems getting pregnant or job issues or trying to pursue hopes and dreams, all these things. Do you then want to come home and just have this totally clueless person who not only doesn't know themselves and know what they like and what's enjoyable for them, um, but they're constantly fawning over you of like, oh, what do you need? And, and, and creating this rampant insecurity in your relationship because you're so petrified that this person is going to leave you. Like that's what I, like when I went into marriage, I thought this person will leave me if they're not pleased with me. Like that was my reduction of marriage was sure people can have like, you know, when they're older and they make it through 70 bajillion years of marriage and then they're no longer sexual and they just are like friends. Cool. That, that seemed okay with me. But it's like, if you didn't survive that long, it was probably because you just had this stereotyped, callous, horny man who wasn't satisfied with you. And if you didn't work really hard to make sure that everything was good and perfect and yada, yada, then they were definitely going to leave you. And and so it was just this like totally one-way conversation in the sexual arena of just like, this isn't edifying. This isn't any sort of sort of mutual connection or soul binding or anything. It's just one person is just totally insecure. And the other person's like, why is this person mentally not even here with me? Like we're not even connecting because this person is a million miles away, probably running over like, what else could I do to make him happy? What if I made a nice pot of stew? Or what if I, you know, like trying to think of all these ways of being the absolutely perfect subservient wife. And there's just no, what does that mean? There's no connection. There's no enjoyment. There's no, you know. And where, and where are you as the female in that too? Like I've learned about that for myself since I've been out of my marriage, because for so long trying to just please him and make sure I'm being a good wife on his terms and Um, all that meant that I wasn't necessarily in tune with my pleasure, what I wanted. I was so focused on what he wanted, what was pleasurable to him that I never stopped to think about, well, what about me? You know, like I almost felt like that was his territory, him as my husband. I felt like because he loved me, he would make sure that I was well taken care of. And it was my job to make sure he was well taken care of, but it wasn't my job to take care of myself. We all know, like, that sounds so crazy, especially if you're listening to this as a secular person. Like, nowadays, we're all about self-care, love yourself first, and then you can love others, things like that. But we're... Which is, let's point out, like, that sacrilegious, that what we grew up with, like, that that idea of looking after yourself is seen as totally humanistic and totally just like that is the antithesis of Christianity in that interpretation of Christianity is just like, maybe it's okay from time to time to set boundaries for yourself. But in reality, you're supposed to be poured out constantly like this living sacrifice over this altar that is insatiable, the insatiable altar that demands eternal and constant sacrifice on your behalf. It's exhausting you just never, you you never can be sacrificial enough. And then you're supposed to be content and you're supposed to count your blessings. And so sure the sex is, might be terrible or your finances are falling apart or whatever, but sure, just be happy for the fact that he still smiles when he sees you <laughs> instead of scowling or, you know, you're supposed to be contented with so little. The scriptures about how wives are supposed to submit to their husbands and husbands are supposed to lay down their lives for their wives. And so I took that really quite literally of, you know, if he wants something, if I love him, I should choose to submit myself to that because that's an act of love for him. And he in turn is doing all these different things that is showing metaphorically that he's laying his life down for me. And so you kind of get these different pressures, but basically it's saying to both parties, you, you should give all of yourself to your partner, even to your detriment, even unto death, like lay yourself down for them. And 
now as somebody who's kind of deconstructing a bit, I kind of think like, you know what, if you're an asshole, I'm not submitting to you. If you're abusive, I'm not submitting to you. If I don't like that, I'm not submitting to you. I am also a person. I don't know how Jesus would think about some of these things <laughs> if I was a wife and saying, I don't submit to that. But as a human being, I can't expect that an all loving God would look at me and be like, yeah, you should put up with that because that's your husband. You know, like I would have a really hard time for someone who would make that argument where there could be these ills going on within a marriage. And then there's this expectation that we should be turning the other cheek and submitting to that person. I don't know. I always thought that was a funny verse because I didn't view it sort of metaphorically. I just thought, you know, when I had read it, it was like, at first, like you said, you take it super seriously. You know, you absorb that as the normal hierarchy and way of things, minus the fact that that the Bible was written in a patriarchal, hierarchical society, and that was just seen as the norm. Of course, mm-hmm. you're going to interpret beliefs and movements at the time through the lens that you have. So, you know, so you have these weird breakthrough moments where it's like everyone's equal and everyone, there's neither Greek, Jew, slave, or free, all are equal. But then it goes back to, oh, but women submit. And oh, you know, like, it's obviously a contradiction. (laughs) It's a contradiction in process. Like, these aren't those, those don't match, you know, one is cultural. And one is like this higher vision of what things could be like. Um, But anyway, I always read that verse as like, like, well, the man, he has to lay down his life for the life. The woman submits every freaking day. And he just is like, yeah, well, in the off chance that a deranged gunman runs into our house, <laughs> I'm like, I'll suppose that, you know, I'll like take a bullet or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was like, uh, I don't think those things are equal. <laughs> yeah. I always kind of took it as like, a non-literal thing of like, oh, it's a guy's laying down his life for me. What does that look like in reality? Maybe it's him working really hard at his job. So he's bringing home a paycheck or whatever. And again, those are so gendered, right? Like there's so, your your submission is translated as sexual submission. His laying down his life is, is translated as you work hard to bring home the bacon, right? Totally. So there's no, there's no sort of ways of unpacking that or discussing that because the hierarchy is still so established within churches that preach those verses right Mm -hmm. um I've never sat you know if you think of how many times I've been in in sermons whether it's Wednesday night bible studies when I think of like the norm for me growing up was Wednesday night bible studies you know Friday night youth group Saturday, you're prepping for worship service. You've got Sunday morning worship, Sunday evening services, and then maybe some planning event in there for, you know, youth group or, whatever. or something. Yeah, totally. And then, you know, every single camp that you went to, every single retreat, every single youth convention, and all the, like, hundreds of different pastors that speak at those things. I've never heard a sermon on those verses about submission and... Um, submission and laying down the life in any sort of egalitarian sense without gendered connotations to those things of like Mm -hmm. submission means like your husband's the head of the house and whatever he wants and he has the final say and largely you are the sex machine and you know he you know never explicitly said but definitely interpreted in my brain that way every single time through this cumulative sort of eye cloud of knowledge that you know circulates in those communities the little whisperings of the potlucks the little like you know side comments there are a lot of times where I think where did I hear that or where did I hear that specific thing but it's just this constant background noise and drone of of what how people talk about their marriage or how people live through certain things or whatever right yeah it's definitely taught to you in word in deed in people keeping others accountable you know like you can't get away from those things in the church circles and the sad thing is is if you deviate from those things you're usually cut off and not maybe not explicitly but there will be 
some sort of disconnect between you and the church group if you don't somehow meet the the social norm of that group of the man's the head of the house and the woman is submissive like mm-hmm. it, it just it doesn't fly and like I don't even think I would have little hope that I could go to a church right now and be like, hey, here's my boyfriend. We're living together. We have a lot of sex. We're not married. I don't know when we're getting married. Hope that's cool with you guys. Guaranteed, if we got into a good relationship with any couple there, there would be a conversation, quote unquote. Yeah, come have coffee with us. Yeah, we just love you so much. And because we love you, we want to make sure that you know the truth and that what you're doing is harmful to you and all these kind of things. And also, if you don't, you know, kind of comply, I don't know if we can hang out with you anymore. It would be something like that, you know, because we're promiscuous or something. <laughs> we would be scary mm-hmm. for, for a church. Who was saying it? I forget where I heard it, but they were talking about belief, like non-belief in a sense, like in a broader sense, non-specific belief. Um is far more mystical and faith inducing than having a very rigid set of beliefs, like a very rigid belief system. Mm-hmm. Because rigid belief systems are the frameworks, right? Within which you answer life's questions. So yeah. you go into things going, well, here's the answer here, and this verse gives me an answer to this. It's actually a lot of the ways that I grew up and things I heard in sermons and everything was that. It's all about getting answers. There is no actual faith involved or no mystery or no, it's it's cookie cutter answers. So your whole thing of like, well, this is actually the healthiest thing for me as a grown ass woman is taking this relationship slow and we live together. We actually don't know if we're going to get married because it's a two way conversation between my partner and myself. Yeah. Um, that runs deeper than some just token ring stuck on a finger. Um, that's, that's incompatible with a very rigid, this is how life works. This is how answers are formed. You do these things, like you said, you will be safe. Um, it takes a lot more, quote unquote, faith and sort of mystery and wonder to just allow for the severe differences between humans and the, the different ways our sexuality works and the different ways that our brains work and the different ways that we process reality, mm-hmm. that takes a broader and a looser sort of grip on things and thus more trust and more faith that, okay, maybe it'll all be okay, even though it seems quite chaotic and things aren't in their orderly little boxes. Actually, I'm actually breathing easier now because there's space, you know, having those really strict of like, Oh, well, Krista, you're in sin. Come have this cup of coffee. And because we love you, we're going to like prescribe to you the right way to do things because that you're disrupting the apple cart. You're, you're saying, actually, I'm very happy and healthy. And I didn't follow your rules. I didn't follow what you said. In fact, when I did like for you, when I did follow the rules, it didn't work. And that's a really, easy one to remedy when your rules aren't based on anything divine. Like if I just make up rules and then I'm like, Christy, you have to obey my rules. And you're like, Sarah, get out of my life. I'm going to do my own thing. Cause it's not based on anything. Then, yeah. then, you know, that's easily flexible. But when you're literally saying all the rules and the frameworks that you have are divinely handed down, written in stone and passed along and black and white accurate, accurately from over 2000 years ago, then anyone who thrives or looks healthier well outside of that system, well, it's all just a lie. It's just fake news, right? This person's functioning. They're functioning extremely well. They're super healthy. Um, Oh yeah, but they're definitely unhappy inside. I bet they're just miserable. They're they're probably just horrible and they're going to go to hell. And, you know, because you can't, you can't question that framework because it's divine. Right? Yeah. Well, and I think what's been a huge takeaway for me is I look at a lot of people's lives now that I used to judge. You know, I used to judge people as an insider and think like, oh, they're, they're falling, they're backsliding, they're, they're falling away from God, all these kind of things. And I have so much compassion and almost just like I feel a little guilty about it now because I understand that the people who are able to 
to toe the line and, and conform to these black and white rigid beliefs um, are usually the, the ones who haven't experienced a huge life upset, maybe, to challenge a lot of those things, or they have, and it's easier for them to conform and keep their community than to challenge the idea itself. And so the people who are in it, I wonder how well they're actually doing, how, how strong is their actual faith. And then I also look at the people who have backslidden, who I used to judge, and I think, I get it now. Like, I understand, and I have so much more grace, I think, to have those conversations and just be like, I don't judge you. I'm, I'm thrilled for you to just be a happy human being on whatever journey you're on, and I accept you, and I have no agenda to convert you or keep you accountable to some rigid belief that someone told me I should believe in, <laughs> you know? And I think that, I, I wish that the church would be more like that, of like, wherever people are at in their journey, even if they're like the woman at the well that Jesus finds who's sleeping a lot around with five different people and she has a husband, but she left her husband, that whole story. He's I, probably an asshole. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, I just wish that they responded as Jesus and didn't throw the stone, right? Like, Instead, we, we don't have a lot of those stories. The church is known for shooting their wounded instead of being like, hey, I get it. I love you. I don't care if you're sleeping around right now. I hope that you're being safe. You know, like, it just- I think I think that that's hard, though. I don't know. Like, again, I think what you're, you're hoping for is something that can't exist with the theology that's held. Yeah, because not. it is only Jesus is the only way there is only one way. And that way is specifically interpreted through a very strict biblicist lens where everything is um, read and interpreted literally without social, economic, political context of the time in which it was written. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, context is given arbitrarily. Like, oh, it was the Romans were in power at this time. It's not written as if where we have to understand who has the money, who's the voice in society, who's actually filtering through messages and who are the writers, like who are the writers of history? And we're never looking at that. It's always like, oh, the Romans were in control of time. That's supposed to be sufficient context for interpreting these scriptures correctly. Um, I was talking to a neighbor of ours and maybe I'll get her on the show on the show. It's not a show, Sarah. It's a podcast. I'll get her on the podcast. Maybe it's going to be a show. Okay. (laughs) And she has her master's in art history. And she just said that was the phenomenal thing. It's like, you can look at a painting and you can say, oh, this is an oil, like an oil medium. You can span out and you go, oh, this is a type of kind of art that was done at the time, like impressionist or whatever. Yeah. Then you can go back and sort of like your socio-ecological framework where like you're taking concentric rings outward and then you go, okay, who commissioned this painting? What were the beliefs at the time? Who was responsible for compiling this? Why was the, what was the theology or the ideology or the political agenda of the time of why these colors were chosen and why these certain figures were highlighted? So you have all these storytelling mechanisms that art historians who look at cultural texts are looking at, but then us in church, we're like, ah, it's the Romans, look at all the bad Romans. And we're not even looking at the text of like, how was it compiled? Who wrote it? Why were these people able to do it? What was their angle? Every single thing, whether we like it or not, every bit of news we get, every bit of, um, and I'm not talking about conspiracy theories, I'm just saying, Everything that we um, digest in terms of art and writings and whatever, and you know from health sciences, different people, it's funded by different people. It's supported by different people. Certain outlets only print, like the Lancet is only going to print these kind of health articles. The Guardian is only going to write on these kind of articles. And they may be thorough and legit, and they may be some of the best out there, but it doesn't mean that they don't occur specifically in a political context, a historical context that certain voices are elevated over others. And that in itself makes it relative and it makes it, you have to hold it with a grain of salt and go, okay, well, but that's not what the theology is in evangelicalism. It's like everything is literal exactly how it's written, context, 
is totally unnecessary, more or less. Um, and then you're told to build your life off of that. Well, is that so our conclusion? Yeah, <laughs> yeah Sarah, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> well, I guess, like, when I think about it, and like I've read the Bible for myself, I went to Bible college, all those kind of things. It's like, I, I could interpret a lot of those things in different ways to support a God that is loving and is accepting of me and is gracious and, you know, all these things. And maybe I'm living in an, a non-ideal circumstance, but I don't think that he put me in hell for it. And some of that is like, am I just doing what's right in my own eyes, quote unquote, or am I reading the Bible better than some of my past teachers who have been really black and white and actually legalistic about it? And if you know the Bible at all, we know that there's like the law and then there's the new, the new Testament where the, the new law basically comes in and there's the Holy Spirit and we're set free from the law and all that kind of stuff. And there's a new covenant. And so I just kind of wonder if the evangelicalism that we grew up in, if it actually painted a really poor picture of God and that there is a better picture of God that could be digestible by me and maybe is actually more accurate to the Bible. Cause I, I read, I read the Bible with a completely different lens and I'm like, guys, you're getting it wrong. Like he's not this judgmental asshole. I don't think that he's so wrapped up with me having sex that it's like the biggest deal. Like it didn't, did it make it into the 10 commandments? Thou shall not have sex before marriage. Thou shall not get divorced. Like we highlight these certain sins in the church and it's like you live and die by these certain ones. So it's like, I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not robbing anybody. I'm doing something with one person in a committed relationship. And yet groups of church people would probably be like, she's going to hell. Well, and there's no nuance, right? So it's like the fact that you might have a kinder, more respectful, and sort of by your new lens, a more loving sexual relationship with your partner. It's not distinguished. So you can have like an old school, possibly hierarchical, abusive unhappy relationship where the woman's opinion, whatever counts for nothing. She's less than the man. You can have that. And it's marriage. Like when people are married and yeah. stay married. Right. And that's seen as better than yeah. an egalitarian, um, loving, compassionate commitment to each other. It's just like, there's no, again, it's just a blunt, a blunt obstacle. But I think it's also important to note if I'm going to rant any further before we push our listeners into oblivion um, <laughs> is this idea that there's no right or wrong ways to interpret the Bible because there are ample verses that support both a loving God and uh, an autocratic totalitarian authoritarian God. There are probably actually more verses that support sort of uh, a cruel black and white God. If you're looking at groups of Christians who, who interpret scripture literally as written, um, it's as easy to say that Christians who are trying to cherry pick verses about a loving God, right. that they're as wrong, or if not more wrong, and quote unquote liberal or whatever, um, than a genuine, true reading of the text. And I think it's just important to point out something that there's this guy, he's a professor um, at, I think it's Concordia University in, in Montreal. His name's Andre Gagné. And anyway, he pointed out that we have to remember that there's, there have been and always will be multiple Christianities. Yeah. That you, the text itself is a weapon. Like it, he didn't say that. I'm just expounding here. The text mm -hmm. itself is a weapon that is like whoever's hands have it. It can be authoritarian. It can be uh, progressive and loving. It can, it can be anything because there are so many contradictions in the actual text of what God is like mm -hmm. that no one Christian has it right over the other. And I think that that's humbling is to go, ooh, maybe if we just abandon this idea of actual literal, literal interpretation in itself, even though the Bible says in some parts, like, you know, use this text for, you know, for teaching and edification and whatever. If we, which of course can be interpreted in a million different ways, but... Yeah if we just hold that loosely, maybe that would solve some of the problems of this Christian's right or this Christian's wrong or this Christian, because once you start literally reading text, you could just make up anything. And that's where like, like what we would have grown up, Krista, you and I calling like cults or sects, yeah, they are, that's from literal reading of text. 
because they have enough verses that they can say, well, this actually means this, and this means this. And mm -hmm. the idea that cults come out of literal reading of the Bible shows the contradictions and shows where things fall apart as soon as you try and start saying, well, this Christianity has it better than this Christianity, because it, the text supports genocide. The text support says for slaves to be content where they are, and it was used to justify slavery with mm -hmm. scriptural references. So I know that I have different like sort of beliefs in some ways now, um, even then maybe two years ago or three years ago, but I've totally abandoned any sort of literal interpretation of the Bible at all. Um, and I know that that's different for everyone, and that's great because I think people need to have that theological back and forth all the time and, you know, hone it and define. But I just think the authoritarians can't say to the progressives, yeah. you have a right or you have a wrong or vice versa, because there are ample verses that could support either. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I especially like your point about how you could have a marriage with um, like an abusive an abusive relationship that has done the technical marriage and kept everything within that covenant. And we would look at that as the best way compared to somebody who is in a committed relationship and healthy. And I think that those little things and those nuances are huge mind fucks for me. I've like, <laughs> grown up in a black and white world and I've only been kind of questioning some of this for the last four years and slowly because it's really difficult to read things out. Because every time you ask a question, you kind of push it down as if like you're blaspheming God or you're having doubts or you should be a better Christian. And basically back to the title of the podcast of you are inviting doom if you don't accept the things that you're supposed to do or have the faith that you're supposed to have. And so it's been a really difficult journey for me to kind of live the life that's actually healthiest for me in this season because it means that I'm going against uh, faith teachings that have been integrated in my life and in my body and in ways that I don't even know in my subconscious since I was born, right? And I think that that's for anybody who's grown up in the church. Like we behave and believe and do things that we don't even know why we do it. We have no idea where it came from. And it's only in these kind of deconstructing seasons where you kind of pause and think like, what the hell? You know, and like you look around and you realize like no one else is doing this. Like no one else is buying this bullshit and it's actually kind of harming me. Why am I still doing that? Like, why would I go into a new relationship and wait till marriage and do ha have a repeat of my last marriage? Why would I do that? And the church would say, well, that, because that's God's way. And if you, if you believe in God and if you trust God, he'll bring the right man to you and you probably won't go through this again. He'll heal your broken heart and blah, blah, blah. But in reality, that's insanity. Like that's insanity. Why would I put myself through that? If I love myself, if I have any care for myself, I wouldn't do that. It just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. It's actually not logical. And yeah. it's, you know, the thing too of like, why would you, something that's so vulnerable and exposed, mm -hmm. why would you put yourself through, through that without actually finding if you are um, compatible in all ways? It's almost like sex is an afterthought. It's like, oh, first you have to be compatible spiritually, which means you just have to believe the same thing. Then yeah. you have to be compatible as in you can't be gay. You have to be a man and a woman. Yeah. And then compatible as in, oh, maybe you like the same hobbies and you both want children. That's the extent sometimes of your compatibility checklist for when you get married. And we go back to this idea of being like sexually stunted. You expect to bloom into a full sexual human being um, and full even theological human being, which you might have lucky enough, luckily enough developed a bit before you got married or whatever. But, you know, you're supposed to just suddenly develop uh, a full understanding of yourself when your understanding of yourself is just submit and sex is an afterthought. And in fact, up until your wedding night, it's totally dangerous. And yeah. we probably shouldn't carry on too much longer. We can always extend this into a second time period. 
but I think there's extensive harm to our bodies and our, like you said, it's all in your body as well. It's not just in your head. Like you, you hold these things in your body and there's something called like religious trauma syndrome and things related to that are like women literally not being able to experience sexual pleasure because their whole lives have been told it's dirty and awful and horrific and, you know, God will send you to hell if you have sex before marriage, unless you're lucky enough to be forgiven or whatever. And this idea that somehow your body is just going to then, after being taught that it's dirty and its desires are bad and that it's just going to then open up magically on the wedding night, it's such bullshit. Like that's not, imagine if you grew up your entire life being whacked with a stick every time you reached for a cookie. And then finally on your 30th birthday, they were like, Oh, go take a cookie. Now. Do you think your body is going to react in a calm, normal, natural way? You probably don't even have a taste for cookies. You probably don't, you probably think they're awful. Yeah. exactly. So it's like, this it's almost like psychopathic training <laughs> to like get yourself to reject its natural things give no safe uh parameters in which it can operate apart from be abstinent yeah until the time comes that sex is necessary for mm-hmm. his pleasure so like you're given no frameworks there's no discussion of of um, boundaries no discussion of equality in the human rights framework. I just think those are serious psychological things that I'm sure a lot of people like Christian people have gone to counseling after being married. I mean, this is not a dream. This is not enjoyable. This is not the, you know, mind opening up that I was promised that it was going to be because it was so idle, like sex was so idolized. It's not any of those things. And it's ruining my life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. It's ruining like my life. It's ruining my marriage. And like my body can't even enjoy it. Like yeah. so. great promises, eh? And that you and yeah. but you're supposed to be you're supposed to judge everything by the fruit, right? So they have this over-encompassing verse of like, you know, if the if the fruit is bad, it's obviously like the roots are bad, right? Yeah. So you have all this really negative fruit that keeps coming from obeying certain things and, and sort of smashing your body into conformity and your mind into conformity with these, these rules and regulations. You have all these like really detrimental things, like I said, shutting off your sexuality, not knowing yourself, being totally stunted, uh, not being able to enjoy sex, all these different things. And then... And then you're, the fruit is horrific. And <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, but that's what God said. So in the long run, it'll be good. It's like, well, well then you're, you can't even trust that. You can't even trust the fruit. It's yeah. all deception. It's all your know, desires are deception. The, the fruit that's ugly that manifests within God's prom- supposed promises, you can't trust that either. Like you can't, it, it's always like, well, when you die, when you die, it'll all make sense. <laughs> Oh, that sounds like a fabulous life. Like, what oh, a yeah, fabulous right? existence. Like, oh, I was just thinking real quick before, as we end, like, I just kind of wonder if anyone's listening as, as a Christian who's also struggled with some of these things. And I think that everyone's sexual journey is really unique. And, um, you, like, I, I couldn't tell any one person what to do. But I would say that there were some things that have helped me um, in my journey. And again, I'm not promoting this as like a blanket statement for anyone to just go do these 10 things and everything's fine. That's not what I'm saying. But this is my personal journey. And what I did for myself was I'm just going to try different things for myself. And I'm going to acknowledge to myself if I like them or not. And then the next step would actually be to communicate that to your partner. And that's really difficult when you're not trained to do that, to say, I like that. I don't like that. You know, like, I don't like that is not part of a Christian, as a Christian wife, it was not part of my vocabulary. And so like those two things of I like this, I don't like this and trying within what I was comfortable with, not just like going out and trying everything under the sun, trying things that I was comfortable with outside the confines of marriage and admitting those things of yes or no list almost. That's really helped me kind of build a repertoire of, okay, me as a sexual being means that 
this kind of works for me and this kind of doesn't work for me. And I like it with this package and I don't like it with that package. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think really it makes, I mean, obviously perfect sense, but really the hilarity of it is it's so absurd to say these things. Like if you were talking about food, yeah, <laughs> like, you know, why don't you go out there and see if you like coconut yogurt? Why don't you try and see if you like paprika? Like all of these things would be, yeah. this is such a stupid conversation to be having. And yet we're old <laughs> and having to reclaim the basics of yeah. what do you humans, like? What don't we, I like? Yeah. As humans, we like to eat. Some like it spicy, some like don't. Everyone yeah. has to eat. Some people don't have taste buds and it's not really like it doesn't work. They don't have flavors. And sometimes Maybe you have a different craving on a different day. Yes. And sometimes different <laughs> cravings on a different day. And all of that is seen as totally acceptable to the human existence and experience. And none of that is applied to sexuality at all. And it's absurd that I'm like 40 years old and we're having to talk about if it's okay if you have different desires on different days and you might want something with spice or not with spice or mm -hmm. like, it's absurd. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah but it's well, sometimes you like it in a nice restaurant and sometimes <laughs> you just want to eat takeout on the side of the road. Like oh, why does it have to, to be so complicated? Or I'm ready to cook all evening. Exactly. You know, this metaphor could go so many different ways. <laughs> I like, ain't cooking for two months <laughs> or I will cook all meals three times a day. I know it doesn't like, and none of that is this like, none of that is static, right? Yeah. Well, and but the absurdity that we don't explore that reality of human existence is just yes. crazy. Well, and I know that you and I aren't alone in this. Like, I think that there's huge masses of women who are starting to maybe talk about it with their friends, but there's huge masses of women who are still completely silent about their sexual journey and dysfunction because they're a submissive wife and the only person that they would be sharing that with is the husband that they're supposed to submit to. So I'm hoping that as people listen to this, they can, they can have a voice or have someone to relate to and think, Oh my God, that's me. I've never been able to say that. Or I haven't ever thought about that for myself and, and just find a place for themselves in this. Well, I guess we should probably leave it there, even though I really like long podcasts because, you know, sometimes you're walking a place and, you know, your place is like 40 minutes away walking and the podcast is like 20 minutes long. It's just like, yeah. I'd yeah. rather pick up a podcast halfway through on the way back than have to click through and find like another podcast. So maybe our listeners will be specific people who like really long podcasts about <laughs> rambling ranty things. Yeah, um, that will be our niche, our, our niche market. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and maybe we'll talk more about like sex and desire. Maybe we'll do like a two parter and I'm sure obviously we'll touch on this again at various yeah. different points. Krista, do you want to have any, you know, your usual nice little summary piece or do you feel like you've summed it up good enough? I guess it's just basically, this is a podcast of invitation into female sexuality within evangelicalism and how do you can break free from a whole lifehood of bondage in that area. Bondage, but not in the good sense. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's us. This is Inviting Doom. Thanks for listening again, guys. Goodbye.